Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day. If any of you husbands don't know, it's Mother's Day now. Right? You're, you're behind the curve. So uh, we're going to continue our series through uh, the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We'll be again in Matthew chapter 5. I told Sharon yesterday as we were talking about Mother's Day, I said, what I really want is for tomorrow, which is now today, to be remarkable for you. But I'm thinking at this point you're going to have to settle for above average. So we're, we're trying uh, to do that and make it work in our family. Mother's Day is obviously a day that we celebrate uh, the uniqueness of moms in our lives. And every single one of us in here is a mom or has a mom or had a mom. And if none of you think you fit in that category, although you do, you'd at least say you know moms, right? This is a day in the church, hopefully, that beyond that we celebrate the uniqueness of God's image in women. And we also acknowledge that today is a difficult day for many. For women who've yearned to be moms and not been able to. For some who may be walking through that experience right now. For a disproportionately higher than usual number of Americans who've lost their moms this last year as we battled through a global pandemic. So for all that mothers are and all that mothers do, we thank God this morning for your lives, for the impact that you make on us, our families, and the fabric of society. Speaking of that, I forgot to mention earlier, I get to announce this morning that Tori is pregnant uh, with she and John's third... Yeah. Due in October, uh, they're on the same train that Sharon and I were, having a child about every two years. So now if they pause for 10 and adopt twins, <laughs> they'll be just before the Lord. Last week, Jake uh, did a great job bringing us a message that dealt with Jesus' teaching around the issue of anger, of murder, of our words. And this morning, we, we pick up this section where Jesus repetitively says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And I don't want you to miss what Jesus is doing here. What he's saying is, you have heard it said in your religious tradition. Your religious tradition has taught you that, that this is what God's teaching in his scripture, but I'm correcting a bunch of what you have received from your religious tradition. And I am revealing to you again and again, the God that you thought you knew. And this morning we come to a passage that is, I think, one of the most difficult in all of the Sermon on the Mount. It is often misunderstood, misapplied, or just completely ignored. So what I want to do is, is read all the way through it, read all the way through it, and then we're going to come back and look at it really in three different blocks. Let's pick up Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body 
than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now, this entire passage is bound inseparably together. But let's look at it under three different kinds of headings. Your Bible actually may have subheadings around this, but let's look at Jesus' teaching around adultery. Let's look at his teaching around divorce and remarriage. And then let's look at his teaching around oaths and how they relate to one another. Part of what Jesus is doing in verses 27 through 30, when he's dealing with adultery of the heart, is he's calling out the tendency of the religious teachers in Jesus' day to hold up specific commandments and ignore others. Like to hold up the commandment that thou shalt not commit adultery, while dismissing and ignoring the commandment that thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property, your neighbor's house, because the, the, the covet rule was harder to follow, right? The covet rule was harder to call people out on. And Jesus is reminding them and teaching them that what God is always primarily concerned about is your heart. From your heart flows the right or wrong behavior and choices and words of your life. From your heart flows righteousness or unrighteousness. And you don't have any control over the transformation of your heart. You can't control yours. You can't control anyone else's. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson let me say this, I'll, I'll quote uh, a few people throughout this message, and really throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I'm narrowing in on a few that I think would be very helpful for you if you want to study the Sermon on the Mount more in depth. Some of these will be on the screen this morning, some of them will not, but New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says about the first few verses here dealing with adultery in the heart that this is not a prohibition of the normal attraction that exists between men and women, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours. Of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours. Now, Carson touches here in his quote about the fact that it is God's normal intent that sexual attraction be between members of the opposite sex. And sometimes that isn't so. Sometimes people are struggling with same-sex attraction. And part of the brokenness and the pain and the difficulty with that is that it is, it is not how God has designed the sexes to relate to one another. And all of us, with our sexual inclinations and our sexual propensity, have to submit that to God. 
whether that's heterosexual or homosexual, and ask God to transform our hearts, to show us how in light of our sexual inclinations, how we follow him to the fullest degree, given who and where we are. We submit our human sexuality to the sovereignty and the goodness of God. But D.A. Carson says, I don't want you to confuse what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying don't be attracted to members of the opposite sex. He's saying what Jesus is getting at here, and he's absolutely right, is the deep-seated lust which consumes or devours. And we all know the difference, right? Men, you know the difference in, in the first glance and the acknowledgement that God has done good work. And the second glance, third glance, fourth glance, the consuming desire of lust. We know the difference. John R. W. Stott, who I think by any measure would be one of the greatest and most influential Christian lives of the 20, 20th century, um, said that deceitful, deceitful or shameful acts almost always start as shameful fantasies. Shameful acts or deeds almost always start as shameful fantasies. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying, look, you've just said and you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But that's not that hard. That's not a real high bar. How many of you ladies would have found your husband beautifully intoxicating in the night shining armor if his marriage vows to you is, I shall not commit adultery? Here I am, right? That's not a real high bar. Jesus says, look, I'm telling you, if you're looking at women lustfully, if you're yearning for them as, as in a sense, pieces of property for your enjoyment, you've already committed adultery. And Jesus is using this word and uses this word here throughout the Gospels in a wider sense, not just of, of sexual activity outside of a, a marriage unit, but any sexual activity, not just a spouse cheating on someone, but any kind of sexual engagement that exists outside of the covenant bond of marriage, the covenant bond of marriage between a man and a woman. Let me give you a few verses uh, that I think will help us a little bit as we think about what Jesus is getting at here with regard to sexual purity really being an issue of the heart. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is dealing with common household codes in his day uh, that really address how, how families and family units and households, which had a wider meaning, it wasn't just a, a family unit, but it was extended family, and business partners and people with whom you had regular dealings, they were on and off your property on a regular basis, consisted in a sense of your household servants, slaves that would have been around. He's addressing this as well as family relationships. And in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, blemish, but holy and blameless. Let me say a couple of things here, and I, I don't want you to miss this. One of the things that Paul is saying is, husbands, we are to love our wives. And, it's, uh, and can I just tell you, it's a struggle to get up here and talk about this with my wife sitting out here looking at me. Huh. I feel like I just need to go home and repent again. Um. We are to love our wives in a way and relate to them in a way and encourage them in a way and pray for them in a way and sacrifice on their behalf in a way and absorb 
their brokenness in a way that aids to their becoming the woman that God has created and called them to be. That's part of what Paul is saying here when he says, we're to love our wives as Christ has loved the church and given himself up for. But don't miss the second thing here. I think often we miss this. Christ, the living word, we're told in verse 26, uses scripture, the written word, to cleanse us, to cleanse the church by the washing with water through the word. It's a phrase that Paul uses. And I, I may have mentioned this before, but I don't know how often you think about how clothes are actually cleaned. But fabric is actually cleaned, not, not by soap, but it's cleaned as water passes back and forth through the fabric, lifting out the impurities that should not be there. That's how fabric is clean. And Paul is using this metaphor, he's using this illustration to explain to us the place of God's word in our lives. Husbands, if you want to be pure, not just externally, but internally, if you want a heart that reflects the purity that God is calling you into, and you want to love your wife like Christ loved the church, you've got to be consistent students of Scripture. You've got to put yourself before God's Word in a way that is humble, pliable, submissive, and listening for God to speak. It's just amazing to me here that Christ, the living Word, has chosen to use Scripture, the written Word, as the means by which we're purified. And if we want pure minds and pure hearts, as Jesus is clearly calling us to here, we have to be faithful students of God's Word. Philippians 4.8, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and he gives us another clue here, um, another way in which we align ourselves so that God's purifying power can live in our lives. Verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul is calling us to a seriousness around that which we set our minds onto regularly. And I would say the primary thing he's talking about here, the starting point, is Christ himself. If anything is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, it is Christ himself. Think about Christ. Have minds that are stayed on the person and the work of Christ. And it will, in time, transform you. It will, in time, transform you. Now, one more passage I'll point out from Matthew chapter 7. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, from Mark chapter 7, which will be so revealing about the place of our heart and our lives. Look at verse 20. Of Matthew chapter, or I don't know why I keep saying that. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, starting with verse 20. He that is Jesus went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Now, I want you to pay attention to all these things that, that Jesus just links together as equal in terms of sin. 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. A lot of you right now, you're feeling pretty good about yourself. Let's fix that. Greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy. Anybody ever gotten on Facebook or Instagram and envied someone else's pretend perfect life? Slander. Uh oh. Arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. God is always about the transformation of our hearts. It's work you can't do and I can't do. We can dress right and we can say the right things for a while. And we can do and not do the right things for a while. But it's our hearts that are the problem. That's why uh, taking physically seriously, Jesus' admonition here, hey, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. I hope you understand, and I think by the fact that none of you have done any of this, you understand that Jesus is, is speaking hyperbolically. He is, he is using an, an argument from exaggeration here. David Turner, a New Testament scholar, says that since evil arises in the heart, amputation cannot cure it. And so it should go without saying that these two commands are hyperbolic. Yet Origen, a third century scholar, actually castrated himself in an attempt to be obedient to what he understood to be the call of Christ and to finally deal with his lust issues. You can simply Google this and find out people, uh, even in our day, who attempt to follow this in order to be faithful. Like, you can appreciate their faithfulness to Christ, but not their interpretive lens by which they read Scripture. One commentator I was reading this week said, a mutilated stump can still have an evil heart. Gouge out the right eye, can't you lust with your left? Gouge out your left, can't you still lust? Cut off both hands? That's not the problem. That's not the problem. I will say what Jesus is saying here that we need to hear is that you and I are to deal seriously with our sin. We like to sort of nibble at the edges of it. We like to court and play with sin that we don't think is very careful. But I'll tell you, sin is destructive in your life. It's destructive in your life. Every once in a while you can go to YouTube and watch people playing with animals that they shouldn't be playing with. Right? And you just think, just give it a little while. Uh, and then the animal reminds them who's stronger. It's like somebody slapping a tiger on the nose and saying, but he's domesticated. And you want to go, just slap him again. One, one more time. This is how sin is. We are not to pamper it or flirt with it. We're to hate it, crush it, and dig it out by the empowering of God's Spirit in our lives. And here's the, this, the issue about sin in our day. We don't sort of uh, collectively as a culture, and I would often say, if we're not careful in the church, we don't have a theology of sin that sees it as it is. Sin is not seen as an offense toward God that needs to be repented of. It's seen as a disorder that needs treatment. Well, you and I definitely need treatment. And we definitely need uh, counseling and therapy and other kinds of things. But what we primarily need is repentance, confession, forgiveness by God, and restoration. And sexual sin is especially elevated this way. We're basically told this collectively. Don't repress sexual desire. That will, that will cause psychological damage. 
But can I just tell you, we're the most psychologically damaged people in history. And we don't repress anything right now. It's this lie that God's not really good. That the parameters that he sets up in his word, he doesn't really set up for your good and for your thriving. But Jesus doesn't just stop with dealing with adultery and issues of impurity because this leads directly into the issues of divorce and remarriage. Let's hear him again in verses 31 and 32. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I just want to sit on that for a minute. Because I believe, and I think the evidence in the church is very clear, that we just read past this and go, ah, Jesus certainly didn't mean this. We're not sure what we meant, but he couldn't have meant this. So we just sort of marry and divorce as, as we desire. And we tend to live in, in one of two false extremes here with regard to divorce. We don't take it seriously enough so that marriage is sort of a hobby, even within the church. What we say is not one man and, and one woman for life, but we say one man and one woman at a time. Or we take it so serious that we sin in the opposite extreme. And we pretend like and we believe that divorce is somehow the, 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 the one sin that God doesn't fully forgive and restore from. And we try to give people levels at which they can be involved in the church based on whether or not they've been divorced. We sort of give them an invisible scarlet letter to carry around. And Jesus is having none of this here as he reaches back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And begins unpacking it some for his listeners. Now, Jesus says what he says here and he means what he says here. That God takes marriage so seriously that to divorce your spouse for any reason other than sexual infidelity is to commit adultery and to cause anyone that remarries them to commit adultery. Now, why this exception? Why this exception? Well, because sexual infidelity has already severed the bonds, the covenant bonds of marriage. It's already broken it. I'm going to relieve a little bit of the tension here in a minute, but I want you to feel it first. Because Jesus says what he says and he means what he says. And part of our problem in the Western world is that we really do believe that God's greatest desire for us is our happiness. And Church, that's just not true. God does care about your happiness, absolutely. Jesus is the one who says, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest degree possible. But don't make any mistake that in your marriage, God's primary goal is your holiness. And your, your happiness follows that. But we tend, to, we tend to live out of a theology of personal happiness. Surely whatever makes me happy must be right. This is what God desires. The problem is you don't know what makes you happy. And what makes you happy changes all the time. What makes you happy changes all the time. Dallas Willard says that one of the most important things in the male mind of Jesus' day was how to get rid of a woman who did not please him. 
And he's absolutely right. They, they, entire discussions in Scripture around this. How's the best way to drop her off on someone else? She's not who I thought she first was when we got together. Now, if you look back, and you probably won't, but if you look back and you, you read the Mishnah, which is a, a compilation of, of early Jewish writings from the rabbinic authorities before Jesus' day, during Jesus' day, and after Jesus' day, you see a lot of teaching around this. There are two that stood out to me this week as I was looking at this again, Hillel and Akavah. Hillel lived 50 to 100 years before Jesus, and Akavah 50 to 100 years after Hillel said this, uh, a man can divorce his wife if she spoiled a meal. I appreciate that laugh, Sharon. Yes. Yeah. See, at the 9 a.m., those ladies were pretty safe. They weren't concerned. Let's be honest, some of you women would be in danger here this morning, right? And some of you would be fine. Don't send me hate mail. Um, some of you would be fine. But Akava, he took it to another male level, and he said, a man may divorce his wife is permitted. Now, remember, this is the religious teaching that forms the context around which Jesus is teaching the actual word of God. That a man may permit, a man may divorce his wife, as long as he gives her a certificate of divorce, if a more beautiful woman was available. Aren't male-led societies grand? A husband may divorce his wife if a more beautiful woman is available. Now, can I just tell you the delusion that we live with in our day? In Jesus' day, women didn't have a lot of choice who they married. In our day, in our culture, they have a lot of choice who they marry. In fact, I saw I went to pick up kids from the school the other day. Our kids from our school, I'm going to make that clear. Our kids from their school. I went to pick them up, and I was watching like two little uh, young high school uh, people over to the right talking at the back of this vehicle, young man and young woman sitting there, and I was thinking, she has no idea how much power she wields right there. No clue, right? But the delusion we live with in our day, men, is that if only we weren't married, all of these other beautiful women would, would be ours. They actually want to be with you. That's the delusion you live with. And into this, Jesus is elevating the dignity and the worth and the value of women who are co-bearers of the image of God, who are co-laborers in the work of God, who are given co-dominion, that's authority and rulership and reign over God's creation with the first man before sin enters the world. And Jesus is speaking into the dignity and the value of women. He's elevating them. And he's also addressing what love really looks like. We no more have the right or the ability to define human sexuality than we have to define love. And we think we can define them both. One scholar said this about love, that biblically centered, love is the determined commitment to seek the other's good. You want to know what love is? That's what it is. It's not Valentine's Day, the little candy hearts and chocolate. It's a determined commitment to seek the other's good to the glory of God. Now, we've had all kinds of messed up teaching around this. I can remember as a high school student, and maybe some of you sat through something like this, and then as a college student seeing it again, uh, when we would have these, these purity speakers come and talk to us, and what they would try to do is scare you out of having sex before you're married which only works for so long, 
We're the most, well, the Roman culture was pretty sexualized too. Uh, but we're about as sexualized as any culture in human history has been. Uh, the only thing that puts sex in its proper place, and sex is a great thing. God designed it. But it has to, it has to have its proper place. The only thing that puts it in its proper place is a transformed heart by and through the Spirit of God. But we'd have these, these purity speakers that would come in, and they'd be talking and teaching about how true love waits. And every once in a while, they'd, they'd pull out a rose, and they'd say, man, just pass this rose around and look at it and feel it. And, and you do this all around this big group of teenagers or college students. And then they'd bring the rose back up at the end, and it's all wilted. You know, it's missing part of its petals, and it's been damaged. And they'll hold it up, and they'll be like, young women, who wants a rose like this? Who wants a rose that's just been passed around from, from man to man? And you just want to go, Jesus does. Maybe you don't actually know him. But even in that, we betray the reality of our own sinfulness and just discounting male participation in all of this in a way that Jesus certainly, certainly does not. And I'll say this, even when divorce is the best of bad options, and can we just be honest that sometimes it is, it's still incredibly, incredibly destructive. Let's look at Matthew. Let's turn back a, a few chapters to Matthew chapter 19. Because I think to, to really understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to see a little bit wider context. Matthew chapter 19, read verses 3, we'll read verses 3 through 10. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Now, can we stop there? It never goes well, does it? Right? You and I don't have the intellectual capacity to test God. But the Pharisees, they come to test Jesus. And they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? <laughs> Interesting question, isn't it? Jesus, can I just let her go for anything? She's been annoying me all week long. Haven't you read, Jesus said? Now, if you think Jesus wasn't sharp, and Jesus wasn't passionate, you don't understand how much he's insulting them right now. He's being sarcastic and insulting toward the Pharisees, who since Jesus is sinless, you have to assume they've earned it, right? And he gets to dish it out because he's God, we're not. He knew good and well they'd read what he's about to quote. Not only read it, but memorized it. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? He's going all the way back to the beginning of Genesis and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is part of why divorce is so painful and so destructive. Because Scripture teaches us that, that in marriage, you're not just two people living in one house. You've become one person together. Verse 7, Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Well, that's a misrepresentation and, and misquoting of Moses. He didn't command men to do that. He said, if circumstances present themselves where a divorce is the best of bad options, you are required to give your wife a certificate of divorce so that she can then go on and likely remarry. Now, look at, listen to Jesus correct them without even saying he's correcting them. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. He just takes command and changes it to permitted because your hearts were hard. Divorce is now and has always been a concession to human sin and brokenness. But it was not this way from the beginning. 
I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Here's why this was stunning. Jesus just said, you don't just cause your wife to be an adulterer, you're an adulterer. No one had ever told men in Jesus' day that they were committing adultery. They never committed adultery by the fact that they were men. Adultery was always the shame born on a woman. And Jesus is upending this here. Now, listen to his disciples. Don't you love these guys? In verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> They're like, if we can't send them away when they burn the food and more beautiful women are available, why even get married? Oh, the hardness of our hearts. Again, I want you to hear the words of, of Dallas Willard. In the Jewish society of Jesus' day, as for most times in human history, the consequences of divorce were devastating for the woman. Except for some highly unlikely circumstances, her life was simply ruined. No harm was done to the man, by contrast, except from time to time a small financial loss and perhaps bitter relationships with the ex-wife's family. I love this. A little financial loss and perhaps bitter relationships. Like they may have said, we told you she was a psycho when you married her. So they're fine. But he said, perhaps you're going to have bitter relationships with the ex-wife's family. Divorcing women in Jesus' day usually left them two options. Because when you divorce a woman and sent her away, you took from her her provision, her protection, her sustainability, her honor, her standing and value in the society. Two things were left. A quick remarriage to whoever was available and would have her, or prostitution. Those were the options left. Reading commentators who are faithful to wrestle with this, I found this statement, which is about as direct and clear as you can get on Jesus' teaching here. If there's been no sexual infidelity, there can be no real divorce. And if there has been no real divorce, there can be no real remarriage. Therefore, all additional sexual unions are adulterous. Marriage is a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. Now, having said all of that, 1 John 1, 9 says that if you and I are faithful to confess our sins before God, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse and purify us from all unrighteousness. Does John say there, except divorce? No. Three of you knew that. Does John say there, except for adultery? No, he doesn't. Does John say there, except for an unbiblical remarriage? No, he doesn't. If you and I are faithful in our humility to confess our sin before God, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Marriage is a big, big deal to God. We're not just married to our spouses, church. We're married to the institution of marriage. We champion and promote and protect the institution of marriage. Even if we're single, we're to be champions of the institution of marriage and give ourselves fully 
to God's work in and through the local church as Christ himself did. Marriage is not about you. It's about God and his kingdom purposes. Divorce is never God's will. Never. But neither is it the unpardonable sin. So we must not make too little of divorce and we must not make too much a divorce. Does that make sense? We deal with divorce and people walking through it with grace and mercy and sensitivity. We pray for them and we come alongside them and sit with them through their pain. Let me just say one more word before we deal with the issue of, of oaths and finish up this morning. We have got to, in the modern Western church, rediscover the biblical theology of intentional, God-honoring singleness. Of intentional, God-honoring singleness. Because in the New Testament, remaining single for the glory of God and the good of His church is a viable, legitimate option. In fact, Paul says, after having likely been married, because Pharisees were rarely ever allowed to be Pharisees, if not married, we don't know what happened to his wife, but as he's writing later in his New Testament letters, he's single and he says, I wish, every, I wish everyone were like me. But he, he says, if you're married, stay married to the glory of God. If you're single, give yourself fully to the work of God for the glory of God. He says, I wish everyone was like me. I wish everyone could give themselves fully to the work of God. Now, singleness has limitations and unique challenges, doesn't it? Marriage has limitations and unique challenges, doesn't it? But if God has called you to marriage, go after it. If God has called you to, to children and to raise a family, be about it. If God has called you to singleness, go after it. You're not a second-class citizen. And I'm sorry that we've created, that we've, we've treated you that way so often in the church. It's a legitimate, off, uh, a legitimate option. Much of the church's ministry in our day is done by men and women who are single and can give themselves to the ministry of Christ in a way that those who have marriage and family responsibilities simply cannot do. Marriage is a big deal to God. Marriage is a big deal to God. Divorce is never, ever God's will. Nor is it the unpardonable sin all right let's look at the final verses here final verses jesus moves naturally into the issue of oaths because at the center of a marriage at the center of our commitment to one another and the covenant bond of marriage is the kind of oath that we take to one another before god in a sense a christian marriage is a triune relationship with god at the center it's also a relationship that belongs to the covenant people of God. Let's look at verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And then he says, Do not swear by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. Some of you men would say amen to that. I can't even make my hair stay up there. Jesus is saying don't swear by things that aren't yours to swear by. 
Don't swear by things that you can't even control. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, Jesus prohibits human beings from calling on heaven or earth when making a vow or taking an oath because both are the exclusive domains of God, created by God, sustained by God, and exist primarily for the glory of God. Ferguson's exactly right. He's exactly right. And we have, a, we have kind of a watered-down version of what Jesus is getting at here. And sometimes you'll hear little children say this, or maybe you heard them when you had little children, or maybe you said this when you were a little child. If they really, really want you to know how serious they are, they'll say, cross my heart and hope to, what? Die. And if they're very, very serious, they'll say, stick a needle in my eye. Yeah. They're saying, I mean this. Not like everything else I'll say that I don't mean. I for real mean this. I know when our kids were little and they wanted to make sure we were going to do something that they'd asked us to do, um, something simple like, will you take me to CVS, Daddy? Yes, after nap. Do you promise? And what they meant was, if a hurricane comes, if an earthquake hits and triggers multiple tornadoes and CVS is ripped from its foundations, will you still drive me there? When you get up. And in Jesus' day, the religious teachers had so nuanced this, as is the nature of a broken human heart, that they would say stuff like this. And this is written in the, in the Mishnah. Okay, now, if you swear by Jerusalem, you don't really have to fulfill that. If you swear toward Jerusalem, you have to fulfill that. Do you get why Jesus is saying this is all about the heart? This is all about the heart. The people of God are to be known for our truthfulness and our faithfulness. I've shared with you guys how much looking back I can see that my understanding of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and my theology of what it means to be part of the church was shaped by the simple faithfulness of older generations in my church growing up to be there Sunday in and Sunday out. I can remember where they sat, where they stood in the choir, they were always there. We undervalue a great deal basic biblical faithfulness in our culture. Making, the making and keeping of commitments. I, don't, I know the future of the church. I have no doubts there. God's kingdom will march on and accomplish the purposes for which God has called his church into creation. The future of the church in the West, the little C, I, I don't know. I don't know the future of a church as the generations who have demonstrated this faithfulness die off. And churches try to exist on generations that consider once or twice a month to be regular attendance and profess to be followers of Jesus. Maybe there'll be a great purifying of the church. I don't know. But I know that, that we are to be people of truth who simply are known by our yes being our yes and our no being our no. That when we make commitments, we keep them. And we're known as people who keep them. We don't have to keep them. We don't have to stack words and swear by greater realities. We're also not to imitate the last best offer nature of our culture. You know what I mean by that? It's that somebody says, yes, I'll be there. And what they mean is, yes, I'll be there unless something better comes up. And then I won't tell you, ah, something better came up. I'll just say I can't come because this, that, or the other. Societies aren't held together, churches aren't built, families don't find stability 
on the shoulders of last best all for people. But our culture and our communities, our workplaces are full of them. We don't just go marriage from marriage to marriage. We go from church to church. We go from home to home. We go from job to job. Always seeking something that only God provides. Which is the stilling and the fulfilling of the deepest human desires. The topics of adultery, divorce, and remarriage, as well as oaths, are inseparably bound together. You can't separate them out. I said at the beginning that there really is a key to all of this. There's a key to this entire passage, and it is simply this, to understand that your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. If you're a follower of Christ, you've been bought with a price. You belong to Him. One of the things that I've heard so many times across my years as a pastor is people saying in one way or another, that's my business. My marriage is my business. Our family is our business. My money is my business. And if it wasn't so so theologically shallow and wrong, it would almost be humorous. I would almost want to laugh and say, oh, so you've never read Scripture. You never understood that nothing is your business. Nothing is your own. And and I think as followers of Christ, we should at least know verbally, we should at least give cognitive acknowledgement to the fact that we're not our own. I have had conversations with non-believing friends talking around this where it's come up. and They're like, I'm my own man. I'm like, then just don't die. If you belong to yourself and you're a man unto yourself and you're your own island, then just don't die when it comes time. You don't belong to yourself either. None of us belong to ourselves. We belong to God. And if we've been redeemed through the power and the grace of Christ, we belong to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. The crazier thing about this, my marriage is my business, you better hope not. You better hope it's the business of others to help you in your marriage, to encourage you, to pray for you, to listen to you when you're struggling. Let's stand and read Galatians 2.20 together. And I encourage you, if you haven't committed this verse to memory, to do so this week. The Apostle Paul speaks here and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We are not our own to make whatever decisions we want, whenever we want. We've been brought with a price. We exist to glorify God and to share the beauty and the sanctity and the goodness of Christ with others. Let's pray.